This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello, welcome to Positive Parenting. We're glad you're with us. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com. The current theory about emotions suggests that our reactions to what happens around us are hardwired and pretty much universal. For example, if we hear about a school shooting, the part of our brain that's dedicated to sadness gets triggered and it causes our body to react in automatic and preordained ways. The idea is that a baby is born with all the emotions already in the brain, joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness, and they all jump into action when they're cued by various occurrences in the baby's life. They age along with the baby, but exist in her brain pretty much unchanged from birth. That all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Pretty reasonable? Well, not so fast, because my guest in this part of today's show completely rejects that theory. She's got groundbreaking new research that proves that emotion is constructed by our brains and our bodies as we go along. Back to that example about the school shooting. So what's really going on when we hear that is that we're reacting to the news by drawing up feelings that we've developed based on our own experience with what we uniquely define as sadness. That process happens so rapidly that we're not even aware of it. And that's, of course, why people respond differently to the same thing. They grieve differently. They feel joy differently. I'm Armin Brott. We're going to start talking about how emotions are made when Positive Parenting continues right after this. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food. We've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food. Because 40% of all food in the U.S. never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's the author of How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, you have a very interesting way of looking at things. You, you, you start talking about how we're all born with emotions, and you made a reference to uh, the movie Inside Out, that came out a couple of years ago that had you know the, all these different emotions playing a great part in people's brains. And then you say, no, you know what? That's not how it works, that it's, it comes from other things and that we bring a lot of other stuff to our emotions. Talk about that and, and how you happen to discover that. Sure. The movie Inside Out is a fantastic cartoon. And like most cartoons about science, it doesn't really teach us how the world works or how the brain works. The idea that's embodied in Inside Out is the idea that the human brain has lurking in it separate circuits, one for each emotion. These circuits are, the assumption is that these circuits are there present at birth, that all humans have them, that even some non-human animals have them as well, and that they are triggered in an obligatory way by things that happen in the world. So, for example, if a snake slithers by you, this will trigger your your fear circuit, 
this will cause these neurons, when they're triggered, will cause um, an obligatory expression on your face that everyone around the world can make and also recognize, that it will cause a very specific physical change in your body, kind of like a fingerprint that you can use to identify the emotion, and that everyone around the world will experience emotions in this way and recognize them in each other in this way. In my lab, for the last 20 years or so, we've systematically gone through the literature, reviewing other scientist studies as well as running our own experiments to demonstrate that, first of all, it's not the case that emotions are wired into your brain at birth. In fact, your brain is wired in such a way that it can make emotions on the spot at, as needed. So you don't have these ancient animalistic circuits lurking inside your brain somewhere. Instead, your brain is wired in a way to create emotions on the fly as you need them. One what what do you mean by that exactly? Give us an example of that. It's not completely sure. intuitive. So, sure. So um, your brain, first of all, Infant, an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that comes awaiting uh, a wiring instructions from the world. So an infant brain will wire itself to the social and physical environment in which it grows. When, and that, what that means is that infants aren't born with the ability to experience emotions like anger, sadness, and fear, uh, or perceive them in, in their caregivers. We may look at an infant who's crying or smiling, and we may perceive an emotion, but what's going on inside the infant's brain is something somewhat different. So babies are born with the ability to feel pleasant, to feel unpleasant, to feel distress or pain or discomfort. They're born with the ability to feel really worked up or very quiet and quiescent. This is what scientists call affect. These simple feelings of affect come from the sensations of our bodies. But in order to, f to feel emotion or perceive an emotion, your brain has to learn concepts for emotion. It has to learn what that heart rate, when a heart rate, your heart rate goes up in certain situations, that might be anger or it might be happiness. That when someone smiles, they may be smiling in happiness, but they also may be smiling in anger or they may be smiling in a way that has nothing to do with emotion. So partly what a, a child has to learn and what we have to learn when we move from one culture to another is what bodily sensations mean and what, um, what facial movements um, mean and body postures and so on. So your brain is equipped with the ability to make emotion. It has basic ingredients just in the same way that your kitchen has basic ingredients like flour, water, and salt, and you can make many different foods from those ingredients, and you can also make non-foods like, uh, like glue, for example. Uh, in the same way, your brain has a set of basic networks mm -hmm. that it can use to not only make emotion, but to make every other um, right. mental state that you have. Now, what is it, then, that accounts for differences in gender kinds of things. I mean, I can see individual differences between, you know, somebody's background is going to make them more fearful in certain cases uh, when they see that snake slithering by. But, you know, we have these stereotypes about men and women, and women are more emotional, and, uh, you know, what, it's, it's hearing you talk, 
the, the phrase more emotional or less emotional seems to lose all meaning. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you ask that question. So we've done a lot of research on gender differences, sex differences in, in emotion, and here's the general gist of what we find. When we ask men and women to describe themselves in general terms, how emotional are you, how emotional is your life, women describe themselves as more emotional and men agree that women are more emotional. Then when we take these exactly these same test subjects and we follow them day to day for, let's say, a week or a month or sometimes even three months, and we ask them to report on their experiences in a moment-to-moment fashion. So, for example, they'll use their smartphones or in the, you know, the Stone Age, you know, 15 years ago, they used uh, handheld computers. Um, we would ask them to report on their feelings multiple times per day in the moment as they were having the feeling. And what we found was that there were no sex differences in emotion. In fact, there were some people who were very emotional and some people who were less emotional, but on average, there were no sex differences. And if you look in the scientific literature, what you find is that most of the time where you see differences are in people's perceptions. They're not really in the objective data. For example, there's no evidence that women move their, that they express emotion on the face more than men do and so on. There's no evidence that they're more physiologically reactive during emotion than men are. However, when you show an emotional expression to test subjects, if the expression is is being made by a man, the assumption is that he's just reacting to something in the world, whereas if you show the, if the woman is, if, the, if it's a woman making the expression, test subjects will see her as an overly emotional woman. Huh. That's fascinating. <coughs> now, it's going to take a little while to process that, I think, completely. I mean, you know, we get ourselves into trouble with, with that, with these stereotypes. You talk about it in the book about the, in the justice system, for example, that angry men sometimes get a pass that you know they're more likely to be told that they're having a committing a crime of passion uh, and and a woman is who's angry is violating a gender stereotype but I was thinking on the other side of that we have defined depression in very female terms and so we don't have a tendency to see a lot of the behaviors that are symptoms of depression in men which are probably exactly what you're talking about. They come from the experiences that they're bringing. I mean, you know, the the anger or throwing yourself into your work. People don't see that as depression. Absolutely. I think you're completely right. So there are a couple of really important pieces to this, I think. First of all, remember how I said that little brains wire themselves to their physical and also their social circumstances. Well, it turns out that parents use emotion words much more with little girls and they use physical words for physical symptoms much more with little boys. And so little girls and little boys grow up learning on average to make sense of the sensations in their bodies in, in you know, mental versus physical terms, more or less, right? So whereas a dull ache in your gut for a little girl might be disgust or sadness or longing, for a little boy, it might be hunger or um, fatigue hmm. uh, or um, general uh, discomfort. And I, I think the other piece that's really important to note is that, you know, depression, I think, is a really good example of this. 
in our culture, really all, dating all the way back to Plato, we make distinctions between physical phenomena and mental phenomena. But in fact, depression is a great example of, of an illness that is defined in terms of mood, usually, so it's defined mentally, but it actually has major immunologic and metabolic, metabolic disruptions associated with it. So many of the disruptions Lisa, that hang, you see... Lisa, hang on just a second. I want to t- we got to take a quick break. We'll get back to that. I'm talking with Lisa feldman Barrow, who's the author of How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about depression and other emotions. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, the author of How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, and you were just talking about depression a little bit. Yes, I was, what I was going to say is that depression is a physical illness in addition to being uh, a mood disorder. And it may be that men and women experience the symptoms of depression somewhat differently in line with gender stereotypes. That being said, many of the physical disruptions that you see in depression, you also see in other physical illnesses like chronic pain Mm -hmm. and even metabolic syndrome-related illnesses like diabetes and heart disease. You know, I want to get back a little bit to what you were talking about, the difference in, in using emotion words more with girls and using physical words with boys. I've done a lot of a lot of research into this, and one of my favorite studies or a series of studies were by the Condries. I'm sure you, you know of them, where they, they took people through, to, through a, a walkway or something, and they're looking at a little boy or a little girl, depending on what they were told. It was the same kid, and this kid is, is playing with the jack-in-the-box, and the jack-in-the-box pops up, and usually, you know, the kid gets a little upset. And so the invariably, the people who thought they were looking at girls thought that the girl was afraid, and the people who thought they were looking at boys thought the boy was angry. And this is, you know, a nine-month-old. It's the same kid doing ex- exactly the same thing. So, But that sets the stage for how we react to those kids, because you're going to treat a kid who's frightened much differently than a kid who's angry. Absolutely. And so this is a really important point, I think. Remember, again, you know, children's brains are being wired to the situations that they find themselves in. And so the responses of caregivers is incredibly important to how an infant and a child's brain is wired. The actions that you take, the words that you speak, all have uh, an influence on how the brain is wired. It turns out that you know, in, in everyday life, we don't always uh, cry when we're sad and smile when we're happy and pout when we're angry. 
In fact, people smile when they're sad and they cry when they're angry and they sometimes scream when they're happy. A person can tremble in fear, jump in fear, freeze in fear, scream in fear, even laugh in the face of fear. And so the way in which a parent makes sense of a child's actions in emotional terms is teaching the child something. It's teaching the child not only what emotions they're feeling in the moment, but also they're endowing that child's brain with the capacity to make emotions. And when there are systematic differences in how we treat little boys and little girls based on our own perceptions, that isn't just culture, that is culture wiring the brain. Wow. It's just this gets to be so complicated in a way, mm-hmm. but it's also so, yeah, I mean, so simple. It's, it's also, you know, it's really, um, really, really subtle, too. So, for example, there are studies showing that if you take an infant and you dress it up in pink, the test subjects, adults, will try to entrain the gaze of the girl, of the, of the, the infant that's dressed up in pink, as if it were a girl. So if the infant looks away, they encourage the infant to look back to them. Whereas if the infant is in blue, i.e. dressed up to be a little boy, they follow the gaze of the infant, right? So if the boy looks at or the little infant looks away, then the, then the um, test subject also looks away. Something like shared attention or joint attention, that is that you and I might look at each other and then if I look away, you look away, or if you look somewhere, I look somewhere, that actually has a really important function in wiring an infant's brain, and when we systematically, you know, respond differently to little boy babies and little girl babies, we're really setting the stage for fundamental differences uh, that will emerge in behavior later. Now, not everybody does this, obviously, and as you said, there are individual differences, but on average, I think these stereotypes that we have uh, these gendered stereotypes about emotion do really have an impact on the kinds of experiences and behaviors and also the kinds of difficulties that our children face as they grow. All right, so what do we do as parents to overcome some of this stuff? I mean, it's going to be impossible to get rid of all of it because the, the messages are so powerful coming from all sides, but you can chip away at it a little bit in your own living room. Absolutely. There are many, many things that you can do, and these are some things that I go over in my book. So, for example, if you know that words shape development, brain development, then even before children can talk, you should be using lots of words, and particularly lots of emotion words, to speak to them. You can look them straight in the eye, as you, and as you do, widen your eyes to grab their attention, and you can narrate your experience for them. You can talk about your own experiences and, as you're speaking to them, and you can also label what you believe their experiences to be in that moment, you can in, even engage in, in, in turn, you know, taking turns in conversation, even with a preverbal infant. Now, there's research showing that, that words matter to infants. Infants can use words to learn about the world. As young as three months of age, they can learn abstract, sort of uh, rudimentary abstract concepts using words, even when they don't know what the words mean. So this is really important. I think another important thing to know is that, you know, we are social animals. And what that means is that we regulate each other's nervous systems. We do this not just by um, 
we'll definitely do it by giving hugs and so on, but uh, and feeding you know our children and uh, and and clothing them and and so on. But we also do it um, with uh, with our own bodies. So it, when I'm talking with my daughter um, and uh, my heart rate changes and my breathing changes, she's likely to synchronize her breathing and her heart rate to me, or I might be synchronizing mine to hers. But the basic point is that when there's trust and uh, connection and, and, and solid attachment between a parent and a, and a child, uh, you are better able to help your child regulate his or her nervous system, which helps facilitate uh, productive emotions and, and emotion regulation. What determines another, who synchronizes to whom? That is a great question which I don't think we know the answer to yet. Um, it seems to me that the likelihood is that this is a hypothesis just based on, we've done research actually, we started to do research on the brain basis of synchrony. And I think that what's happening is that probably very responsive caregivers synchronize to the infant and then lead the infant to change his or her um, uh, physical signals. Hmm. So, for example, if I wanted to calm you down, let's say you and I were having a conversation and I wanted to calm you down, I would match your breathing, and then I would slow my own breathing. And if you liked me and trusted me, then you, I would be able to slow your breathing too, and that would calm you down. You're, you're assuming that it's conscious at that point. I think with the, a lot of it is unconscious, though, right? It's almost always unconscious, but what's interesting is it, that you can use things that are, you can use mechanisms that are unconscious and use them in a very conscious and deliberate way if you're a parent. So let me give you an example. I knew from research that when you widen your eyes and show a lot of the whites of your eyes, that is very attention-getting for a human brain. And so when my daughter was very young, rather than raise my voice at her, I would look her, I would call her name and look at her with very widened eyes when I wanted to get her attention or say something really important. I did it in a very deliberate way. And for the rest of her life, even now she's 18 years old, <laughs> whenever I widen my eyes to make a point, she knows that this is a really important point and if she doesn't pay attention to what I'm saying, there could be negative consequences. I don't overuse it but I use it occasionally when I really want to hit something home. This is, now, this is a mechanism, the attending to widened eyes, that is very unconscious, usually, most of the time, and most people don't use it in a really deliberate way. But it's something that I knew about from the scientific literature, so I was able to use it in my child-rearing strategies and in a very powerful and potent way. So in the book, I make available... To readers some of these other some other neurally inspired insights that they can choose to use in their uh, toolbox of parenting if, if they find it useful we have about 30 seconds left what's one more of those uh, another one would be not all words are created equal criticizing we all criticize our kids now and then but kids really need constructive criticism for healthy development casual Brutality and with words, negativity is actually really harmful to a developing brain. So, really, it's really important to uh, sandwich your criticisms uh, and uh, say something positive and then something critical and then mm -hmm. something positive to encourage your kids. 
don't shy away from saying negative things, but never in, never call your children uh, names, never call your son a bad boy, always focus on the behavior instead of, right. um, yeah. And that may seem like common sense, but it actually has serious brain consequences, actually. Lisa Feldman Barrett, the author of How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Really fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Psst, it's me, your heart. High blood pressure is serious, and if you think I'm just going to keep ticking away, you're wrong. I can quit whenever I want, but I like my job. Just treat me better. Maybe we can do some exercise on occasion? After all, we're in this together. Don't let your heart quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. You know, with more and more states legalizing marijuana, I'm starting to get a lot of questions about how safe it is, particularly during pregnancy, and here's one of those. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife and I are in our early 30s and want to start a family. To be perfectly honest, we've been regular weed and tobacco smokers for years. To get ready for pregnancy, though, we both quit cigarettes cold turkey. Beyond that, we disagree. I think we should also give up marijuana. My wife has reluctantly agreed to stop smoking, but she has a medical marijuana card and says that the edible kind is perfectly healthy and won't hurt the baby. So two questions. Is consuming marijuana during pregnancy okay? If not, are the tablets or drops any better than smoking? To be blunt, consuming marijuana during pregnancy is a terrible and potentially dangerous idea. And while the non-inhaled delivery mechanism may be less dangerous, they are still a long way from perfectly healthy. I just came back from a conference where one of the speakers, Ira Chasnoff, talked about this exact topic. To sum up his findings about marijuana, contrary to popular perception, it is not a harmless drug, especially when used during pregnancy. But let's dig a little deeper here. Chasnoff cites a large study done by the U.S. National Birth Defects Prevention Center that found that fetuses exposed to marijuana during the first four weeks of pregnancy are at increased risk of developing anencephaly, which is a severe birth defect that keeps a major chunk of the brain and skull from developing. Prenatal exposure to marijuana may also interfere with the neurotransmitter systems that govern the baby's cognitive and emotional functions. And the effects of prenatal marijuana exposure can last a lifetime. According to Chasnoff, at age six, children who had been exposed to marijuana in utero had lower verbal reasoning scores and deficits in composite, short-term memory, and qualitative intelligence scores. Ten-year-olds prenatally exposed to marijuana were more likely to be hyperactive and impulsive, have attention problems, and be depressed than their unexposed age mates. Depression and attention issues at age 10 are major predictors of delinquency at age 14. And 14-year-olds whose mothers were heavy users during the first trimester had lower scores on spelling, reading, and math. The effects of prenatal exposure continue to show up well into young adulthood and possibly beyond. As you might suspect, not everyone agrees about just how bad marijuana during pregnancy is for the baby. A study done at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, for example, found a connection between marijuana smoking and preterm birth and low birth weight. 
But since many mothers who smoke dope also smoke cigarettes, which are indisputably linked to preterm birth and low birth weight, the researchers couldn't quite be sure that the negative effects were caused by the marijuana. However, those researchers were very careful to note that marijuana use during pregnancy should not be encouraged or condoned. To answer your question about the relative danger of smoking dope versus eating it, I spoke to two doctors, including Chasnoff. Both believe that smoking is more dangerous because the psychoactive chemical in the plant, THC, goes straight from the lungs into the bloodstream. Ingesting marijuana via the stomach, however, takes it through the liver where some of the THC may be filtered out, thereby reducing the negative effects. Bottom line, at the very least, neither you nor your wife should smoke, eat, drink, or consume marijuana in any other way while she's pregnant. If your wife needs more convincing, contact Dr. Chasnoff directly through his website, ntiupstream.com, and ask for a copy of his study. Even if your wife is on the fence, I think it's completely irresponsible of her to subject your baby to a potential hazard that is 100% preventable. Hey, if you've got a comment or a question for us here at Positive Parenting, we love to hear from you, so please drop us a line through our website, mrdad.com. You can also listen to past shows, read columns, and get a lot of other great stuff. It's all at mrdad.com. But for now, sit back and relax, because there's a lot more Positive Parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the mrdad.com radio network. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life, young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. I'm inspired to serve my community based on the fact that I get so much back from it. Ken Wyben, USO Volunteer. This is a great country, and if people were to go ahead and step up to the plate by volunteering or doing something for their fellow man, this country will be greater than it ever was. Lead. Inspire. Change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service on this station. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat. I founded MrDad.com, and we're really glad you're here. In recent years, there have been unsettling increases in childhood anxiety, ADHD, and developmental disorders. Lots of theories out there attempt to explain this jarring trend, and they focus on a range of variables, including the unhealthy modern diet, overexposure to a variety of digital media, and even the conditions and exposure of an unborn child in utero. All those are perfectly reasonable and perfectly accepted. But, according to my guest in this part of today's show, the increase in the incidence of mental illness and developmental disorders in children correlates directly to the increasing disinterest in and devaluing of motherhood in our culture. 
In a society that values personal fulfillment and achievement over familiar relationships, modern mothers often feel pressure to prioritize work and other endeavors over all else. But even if you get rid of the societal pressures, financial pressures often require women to get back to work right after their babies are born. And with so many distractions and everyday demands that drain our emotional reserves, it's even more vital now that mothers learn to connect with their children every day. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about how moms can be more physically and emotionally present with their children when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Erica Komisar, who's the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I have to say, Being There is the title of one of my favorite books by Jerzy Kaczynski. If you, and there's also a, a great movie with uh, Peter Sellers. I love that movie and that book. So, which has nothing to do with anything, but it, no. <laughs> anyway, thanks, <laughs> thanks for joining us. But uh, tell me about where we are in the continuum. It seems like if you pay attention to this sort of stuff, and I, I do, that things come in waves. There's a, a certain period of time where we're saying to mothers that if you don't put your kids into childcare and pursue your career, you're going to be doing some terrible damage to your kids. And then after a while, that one fades, and then it comes back into if you do put your children into child care and pursue your career, you're going to be doing some terrible harm to your kids. You're, you're trying to, to smooth that out, but w- so where do you think that you fit into this? So, I mean, you're right in saying that society goes in waves. I think that, you know, the pendulum has swung very far from, I guess you'd say, the women's rights movement, which gave women so many choices and really so many women sacrificed so many things uh, to offer women choices. But, you know, now basically we're seeing that the pendulum has swung so far away from, you know, in terms of focusing on our own needs as women, but not really focusing on the needs of our children. Um, And I was seeing this societal devaluation of mothering and how we were really failing our children, which is really why I wrote the book. Um, As a psychoanalyst and a parent guidance expert, I was seeing this epidemic level of emotionally troubled children in my practice with serious symptoms, earlier and earlier being diagnosed with things they, they were then being medicated for, like ADHD and behavioral problems and aggression and social disorders. And I really was linking it to the absence of mothers. Uh, is it really mothers per se, or is it parents in general? I mean, in other words, are our so, kids who are being raised p- predominantly by a dad who's you know, a stay-at-home dad or something, uh, and right. is there a devaluation of that as well that causes so, problems? I love dads. <laughs> I love dads, and I love that dads are more 
involved in the the care of their children, involved overall with their children. Um, but you know, in the research that I really looked into, the attachment and neuroscience, it backed up what I believe to be true, which is mothers and fathers are not exactly interchangeable. Um, that for thousands of years, biologically, mothers and fathers have nurtured differently. Um, you know, when mothers and fathers nurture their children, they both produce uh, a, a chemical in the brain called oxytocin, which we call the bonding chemical, the love chemical, if you will. Um, but it, it has a different effect on women and men. On women, it makes them more empathic, sensitive nurturers. And on men, it makes them more playfully stimulating. So the daddy will throw the baby up in the air higher, tickle more intensely, um, which isn't to say that fathers can't be taught to be sensitive, empathic nurturers, but it's not as if they're exactly interchangeable. And in the first three years, for the right brain development, social-emotional development, we really want to be more sensitive, empathic nurturers. But you would agree, I, I would hope, that kids need both. They do need both. So, again, for thousands of years, mothers have been the objects of attachment, meaning providing emotional security for children, and fathers, with their playful stimulation, have helped with separation. So, you know, it, it is important to have someone who is the attachment object and someone who is the separation object. Um, and then it brings into question the idea of single parents and how do they do that. And then the idea is that, you know, we need to have a separation object too, which is the function that fathers have served for so many thousands of years. So when you're talking about the book, are people lashing out at you a little bit for falling into the camp or seeming to fall into the camp of saying that mothers need to spend more time with their kids and less time elsewhere? I mean, it's, so it's a politically it's, incorrect sort of thing. I, well, it depends on the, on the specific time we're in, but right this minute, I yeah. think it's a little bit politically incorrect. I, I'm not criticizing that. I'm just wondering what sort of reaction you're getting. So my hope in writing this book was to start a dialogue. Uh, to start a conversation, and a really difficult one, and a politically incorrect one, but a really important one. Um, because, again, this this mental uh, health crisis in children that I've been seeing, that I've been linking to the absence of mothers, is going to get worse. It's going to continue if we don't at least have this conversation. You know, we live in a country that doesn't provide any kind of maternity leave policy, so all women of all socioeconomic backgrounds, can be with their babies. Um, so, yeah, it's a dialogue and a hard one that we have to have. So how is it exactly that society is denigrating motherhood and, and mothers? Well, you know, again, society doesn't value mothering. Um, we value other things. We value material success and professional achievement and uh, more stuff and and we really don't um, value mothers and mothering and nurturing. And, you know, I've gotten a response from this book. People from all over the world, you know, just came out on Tuesday, have been emailing and calling and saying, thank you for recognizing me as a mother. Thank you for recognizing what I believe to be true, which is that I'm doing a wonderful thing for my child. I'm making sacrifices to give my child a good uh, foundation. So um, we really don't value mothering in this society. Is there a way to put a value on it? I mean, in, in other words, are, are the, the kids who are suffering the, the effects of, of lack of mothering, are they going to so, 
you know, are they going to do worse in their life? Are they going to have they earn less money later on in life or something? Is there a way of, of putting an economic piece to this? I mean, certainly there are economic pieces to it um, in terms of depression and anxiety and all the disorders that come with it uh, in adolescence and adulthood, all kinds of addiction. You know, um, they cost society money. <clears throat> Excuse me. They cost society money and um, they make people less productive. And obviously they also make people unable to have meaningful relationships. <clears throat> so, yes, there is a cost um, to society. Now, you talk about quality time and the, the, that's essentially a myth, but d- explain that a little bit. You're, you mean, you're, you're definitely in the quantity time over quality time camp. Well, actually, I'm in both. Um, I feel that you can't really talk about children and talk about quality time alone because quality time is on adult time. And children need their mothers all day long throughout the day from moment to moment on their terms. And so, you know, really we need both quantity and quality. Okay, but that's that's a tough thing to do. I mean, especially that's kind of at the heart of the whole argument that you're making is that women are spending so much time elsewhere that they don't have the quantity and so their That's their right. hope is that they're going to be able to make it up by having a really, really great time for a limited amount of time. So let me describe what mothers do throughout the day and why quantity is important as well as quality. Um, there's two important functions that mothers fulfill for children. One is to protect children from stress throughout the day, to buffer them from stress. That then lays the foundation for resilience to stress going forward. The other important function that mothers serve is to regulate her baby's emotions from moment to moment throughout the day, meaning she makes sure that the baby doesn't go too high and too low. After three years, the baby then internalizes the ability to regulate their own emotions. So these are really critical functions that happen all day long. So when a mother is there just for one or two hours a day, She's really missing the opportunity to both regulate her baby's emotions and provide protection from stress throughout the day. We're coming up on a break, and when we get back, I want to have you talk in more detail about the costs to children of not having mom around. But give us one quick example as a preview. Well, so let's just talk about stress for a moment. Um, The disorders that I'm seeing in my practice are stress disorders. Um, and they're also emotional regulation disorders. So what I'm really seeing in the cost is an increase in ADHD is, in a way, the child's um, response to stress, meaning becoming what we call hypervigilant. Um, and in response to stress, we can often become um, hyperactive, seeming hyperactive, and often aggressive. And so these are some of the things I'm seeing which are a response to, to feeling understressed and less protected. Talking with Erica Komisar, who's the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will keep talking with Erica Komisar. My mom is a hero. She goes into burning buildings. She finds people inside who need to be saved. And then she helps him get out, even when she can't breathe or see, even when she's a little scared. 
My mom is a firefighter. She does great things. And the best thing she can do is come home. The U.S. Fire Administration, a part of FEMA, reminds you to protect the heroes who protect our lives. Have a smoke alarm on every floor. Test it monthly. Replace the battery yearly. Do your part to get out before firefighters have to come in. The fact is, 60% of all fire deaths occur in a home without a working smoke alarm. The good news is, that's a fact that can change. For more information, visit the U.S. Fire Administration at www.usfa.fema.gov. Working for a fire-safe America. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Erica Komisar, who's the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We're just talking about some of the effects, the negative effects on kids when mom is not there, and you were talking about uh, depression. Please talk about a few more of those. I think it's important to, to set the stage at least. Sure. So another thing that I'm seeing in my practice is the inability of young children under the age of three to regulate their emotions. So um, I'll get calls from schools, um, too many calls from schools and from parents um, saying that um, the school is reporting that their child can't regulate their anger, can't regulate their focus, can't regulate, can't sit in circle time. Um, And so really we're seeing more um, more and more children who really cannot regulate their emotions in, in, at a very early age. Now, how can you tell that it's specifically the, the absence of the mother? I mean, there's, there's so many other factors that are going on there. I mean, if, if a mom is not able to spend as much time with her kids, she may be stressed about something. There may be more tension between the, the parents in the home that could lead to some of the symptoms that you're talking about or... There could be financial issues. Uh, you know, how, how do you separate that out? So there are many factors, but I'm going to go back to my, my thesis, which is, you know, Myron Hoffer at Columbia University uses a term that I like, which is he says mothers are the, the neuropsychobiological regulators for children. They basically regulate children's emotions throughout the day. So when mothers come to me and say my child is having these difficulties, I help that mother to be as present as possible emotionally and physically, and I've seen this dramatic, I mean, a dramatic impact on the child's behavior and the the harmony in the house and at school. So I've been doing this work for 28 years, and basically my, my practice is a parent guidance practice. So it's really, a lot of this book is based on my own work as well as all of the attachment and neuroscience and epigenetics research that's out there. And what do you tell moms who are not able to do this, that, that there are too many financial issues or whatever kinds of issues that there are, and, and no, no judgments involved here, but there are mm-hmm. people are just not going to be able to do it as much as they'd like to. So how do you keep right. them from feeling guilty about what's happening with their kids? So there's two issues there. One is that I don't see guilt as a bad thing unless it's excessive and obsessive. Um, I see guilt as a signal feeling. So I say every mother, even a mother who has to work, has some choices. And my book is really a book of information and advice for mothers so they can make the best, most informed choices for 
themselves and their families. And yes, there are mothers out there who have to work, and there are things you can do as a working mother to repair some of this, the absence and the separation. But what I'm seeing in my practice and overall in society is that there are also many mothers who work for lifestyle reasons or who work because they are running away from postpartum depression feelings of boredom or um, you know, having difficulty really caring for their babies. So, and this is something that I treat in my practice. You know, this is this is the mainstay of my practice. Are you saying that that spending more time with the kids can help with postpartum depression? Absolutely. So, when mothers and babies are separated, they actually produce cortisol, which is a stress hormone, both mothers and babies. And one of the reasons that mothers feel guilty is because they're actually feeling under stress when they're separated from their babies. Now, there are many mothers who didn't have, um, you'd say, didn't have a great experience of of their own mothers, and we say mothering is passed down generationally. So some of the postpartum depression we're seeing is actually many generations of mothers not passing down a joy of nurturing. Hmm. All right. And you talk about how maternity leave is, is not sufficiently long and in this country we are we have a terrible problem with it and we don't don't want to get into that that's a whole other show but there there is the family leave act which provides 12 weeks of unpaid in different states in california there's a a slightly paid one and other places have got uh, partly paid leaves but how how much time do you need or, or how much would so, be ideal if, if money were not an issue and and all companies were able to do it how much time would so what enough. I say in the book is more is more, um, and I say it throughout the book, meaning, you know, for mothers who have to work, um, for mothers who want to know how much they should be with their babies, I say more is more. And in terms of maternity leave, listen, there are some countries in this world, civilized countries, who give mothers three years of paid maternity leave. <laughs> I'm a realist. I don't think we're going to get that in this country. But I do think it's realistic to believe that we could at some point have six months of paid maternity leave full pay and another six months of partial pay and maybe another two years of flexibility and control. Now, you've talked about how moms are regulating the emotions of the child during the day. How's that happening? Take us through a a given day. So mothers, every time they comfort a baby, every time they soothe a baby, they're actually regulating the baby's emotions. Every time a baby gets very excited and the mother kind of meets the baby's excitement and brings them back down, that's the regulation that happens all day long. And it's that that's missing in society. I mean, we've seen an epidemic not just in children, but in adults who can't regulate their emotions. Because remember, we're three generations into rejecting mothering. So this kind of regulation that I'm talking about exists in adults too. Adults are using more and more medication to regulate their emotions instead of having the ability to do it internally. Okay, and how how is that going to happen, though? How does it happen with children or how does it happen with adults? No, how, how does that happen with adults? So with adults, actually, therapy has been shown to restart right brain development. So the part of the brain that's responsible for emotional regulation that is developing in the first three years, that is 85% developed at the end of the first three years, Um, therapy has actually been shown to restart the development of that part of the brain. 
Hmm. And so that I mean that's something that you would have adults get more therapy or kids who have not had mom around get therapy or does it make make a difference? Does it work both ways? Well, again, I'm a therapist and I believe in <laughs> therapy. I don't think it's it's widely available to people in this country as it should be. You know, we talk a big game about wanting, you know, there to be more focus on mental health, but then we don't, like with maternity leave, we don't provide the services or the money to back up, to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. Right. So what do you tell moms about what to do during the day? I mean, I think a lot of people who have stayed home with kids, and I was a stay-at-home dad for a number of years, and, you know, on, honestly, there there are moments where you think, i got to get out of here. This is just mind-numbing. And I know mm-hmm. that, that plenty of moms have the same thing, and, and it's, you know, it's not always fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I always say that every job has boring moments, <laughs> and every job has moments where you need to get away and you need a little bit of separation. So we were never meant to be with our babies every single second, but we were also never meant to raise children in isolation. Um, and so, you know, we were always surrounded in history by circles of women and circles of family members who provided us with support and relieved us. And, you know, we're very isolated, which is another, you know, sort of one of the causes of a lot of the postpartum depression that we're seeing. All right. So where do we go from here? Well, I'd like this book to really start the conversation about the importance of mothers and for that to lead us to a place where we make better choices, you know, whatever choices we do have, that we make the most informed choices we can make to prioritize or reprioritize our children. And in terms of policy, I'm hoping that, you know, the government will recognize the importance of mothers as not only being a luxury, yeah, but being a necessity. And do you think that we're close to getting that, or do you think it's an actual possibility? Because it's hard enough to get you know, paid leave anywhere or, or even unpaid leave in a lot of cases? Well, I wrote this book because I believe that you can never stop trying. And I think to make the best argument I can as a clinician and someone who's looked into all of the research to say we actually have proof now that for the mental health of our children, future generations, it is no longer a luxury to be thinking about whether mothers and babies should be together in the first three years. Erica Komisar is the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica, thanks so much. Thank you, Armin. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.